when I was a kid, I wanted to be a tall surgeon um, uh, when I grew up, but now I'm just a short comedy writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Matthew Harowitz. Matt is a prolific comedy writer whose credits include the Comedy Central Roasts, Angie Tribeca starring Rashida Jones, the feature film Premature, and most recently NBC's Will and Grace. He's a former stand-up who has appeared on The Late Late Show and at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. But to his parents, he'll always be not a doctor. <laughs> thanks for joining me, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me, man. This is awesome. I, I love your show, so I'm, I'm happy to be on it. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Honored to have you. So as you know, we like to start with a round of current curiosities. So something that's, uh, that's uh, sparked your curiosity recently. For mm-hmm. me, it's this book I've been reading. Uh, it's, it's called Einstein by Walter Isaacson. It's this biography. It's like the 400, 500 page biography that's been sitting on my bookshelf for literally years. So I, I had this book on my bookshelf for years and finally I cracked into it. And uh, it's, ju- it's fascinating to me to see how somebody could be so smart on one level, but then also have such funny interactions with human beings like just not understanding he can get quantum mechanics no problem but then when it came right. to like actually having a conversation with a layperson, it, yeah. it could go wrong very fast <laughs> yeah. um so just that that was so funny to me and like i mean we see it in in writers rooms too how i mean i know people who work in drama rooms who are super funny like they're working on a really mm-hmm. dark show but then they can be hilarious when you talk to them and vice versa there are right. people who work in comedy rooms who are actually pretty serious earnest people right so it, it just made me think in that in that way yeah so was einstein like was he diagnosed as like on the spectrum at all or was this pre-spectrum i don't even it has I don't, I, I don't think he was on the spectrum <laughs> at least it, the book doesn't cover it but um his interactions with women were pretty funny and right. uh and I mean, he had he had a uh, he divorced from his first wife, and but this uh, it's funny he got in like serious conflict with his parents, who literally wrote like his parents wrote a note to his first wife before they got married, being like, "Please don't marry our son, like please, oh we don't think you're good enough for our son." Uh, oh wow! Yeah, which oh is, you, oh they, she wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we don't think this oh, is we don't, we don't think you're good enough. Basically, in like very thinly veiled language, being like, we don't think you're attractive enough for our son. Right. Uh, That's so funny because yeah. when I went to I, my my, my um, wife's uh, grandparents lived in Israel yeah. and I went to Israel for the first time to meet them before we yeah. got married. Yeah. And my very last night and I was not doing well in Israel at yeah. all. I just was <laughs> terrified. I believed all the stereotypes yeah. about like exploding buses and what have you so i was like (laughs) i was the worst anyway i i i fight through this trip i'm doing my best to be charming i was not successful and at the end of the trip my in this and they're they're speaking in russian they don't speak english so it's being translated to me but um my wife's grandmother raises a glass and goes um to leah and matt we always thought she could just do better. Whoa. And that, and that was like, and that was like, it was like being translated to me. I was like, 
okay. So I was like, that, I, I can't even believe it. I, was like, this is I came to a war zone for you people. Yeah. You know, like it was. Yeah. And you were like, so are my, you sure the translation was accurate? Are you sure? <laughs> oh, no. I Three people told me. And I, I raised my glass and said to my last trip to Israel. <laughs> silence no one laughed no one, oh, no one enjoyed the joke you got out yeah, of there yeah, fast <laughs> yeah totally oh wow, i can't believe that the einstein i might have to read that yeah i've just been catching up on a lot of books i've been meaning to read too yeah it, like just it's a yeah. dense book so just be prepared yeah. all right all right yeah. cool well my the curiosity uh that i've been uh hung up on recently is uh happiness oh cool <laughs> I've, been trying, I've been trying to figure out like once and for for all what like a formula for happiness could be like and it's you know obviously the happiness lab that podcast yeah. uh, there's a bunch of other yeah. stuff i've been reading about and that kind of led me to stoicism so i've been reading oh, yeah. a lot of like uh you know people who write about stoicism like ryan holiday and those types of the guys and um and then some of the books that they link to from their uh you know blogs and their uh emails and stuff so that's kind of you know it's this weird it sounds crazy, but it's like, it's an operating system. It's like a cult before there were cults, I yeah. guess. It's like an, I mean, it's, it's very harmless I mean, cult though. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. They do. A, they're a, they're a cult for doing good, I guess. But, um, but it is this weird operating system that kind of like was developed obviously centuries ago yeah. and, um, and is weirdly prescient. Like it, 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 it is something that, fits right into today and and you know just a lot of different ways of kind of looking at the world and your role in it and and prioritizing and it's just been like something right now when you're when you have time to think it just seems like something that it's uh i've always been interested in buddhism and meditation and trying to read up on that and it's you know usually comes from way of like gary shanley yeah. is into <laughs> it was into buddhism and or you hear that like Seinfeld and Howard Stern are into TM and it's just yeah. like, I don't know. I always read up on these old, you know, patterns of thought and different things. And then, um, yeah, that led to stoicism and it's just been something that's kind of been taking up my quarantine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I highly recommend just like going into Ryan Holiday's catalog and picking something and going from there. But if anybody's up for it, if you're up for it. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta I'll, check I'll him out more. Books. I gotta check him out Ryan Holiday more because mm -hmm. he, I, he's come on my radar recently and stoicism. I thought it was just like a stoic look on your face, but I've realized that right. there's way, there's way more to it than that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I heard him on a podcast recently and he was, he was talking about one facet of a stoic approach, which is like, doing work in incrementally so when you're for example yeah. reading a book he he's like i'll read a few pages each day i don't feel pressured to read like 50 pages in one go um right, so i was right. like oh wow there's a lot more to quote stoicism than just like a, a stone <laughs> look on your face <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah. well but it is this so like i was really surprised at first about like the similarities between stoicism and uh, stoicism's approach to life and a, and a buddhist approach to life and it was like this removal from immediate reaction was the thing that was kind of like, honestly, it was being having to be in the house 24 seven with your kids and teach them. And like, just, you don't get a break. You don't get that moment to kind of decompress. So you have to build that moment into an interaction for yourself. And it was very easy for me at first. And then I, I realized like two or three weeks in, I just hit this point where like, 
I had no more temper. Yeah. And I would wake up and I would wake up ready to pop. Wow. <laughs> that was just, that was it. And so, um, you know, and, and I think it was, I think it was a daily stoic email. Some, I had something and it had like the perfect quote from Seneca might've even been in regards to Cato. And then I was just like, Oh, uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to actually subscribe to this email. And I subscribed to the email <laughs> and then he has one, which is, I can't even believe I'm saying it out loud, but like he has one that is like a stoicism's approach to fatherhood called the daily dad. Oh, nice. And I was like, at that point I was like ripped of all corniness. I was like, I'm going to apply for this. I'm going to write <laughs> and sign up for this thing too. <laughs> so like, you know, and it's like, they're, you know, they're really good. Just kind of, uh, it's like a pregame talk. I read them right when I wake up, I'm like, <laughs> It's the perfect amount of time for like when you start the cup, you start brewing coffee yeah. to let it steep. And then you read these two emails and then you drink your coffee. It's the exact right amount of time. And it's like this pregame talk before you go into your day of like, you know what? The world's about to throw shit at you. And it, it's been throwing shit at people for centuries. <laughs> and here's how they deal with it. And specifically, it's like, here's how, you know, just remember the game plan guys. Like we're going out there to be good dads today. Like even we just got to get to bedtime. It's like we, if we can get to bedtime and stay in the game, <laughs> it's a win. And you know, so I'm reading that uh, I'm reading these emails. I'm reading all the things he links to. And I'm also watching the last dance every Sunday oh, yeah. with, you know, with Phil Jackson yeah. and stuff. And it really is. I'm starting to be like, all right, look, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to be the Michael Jordan of dads. I just need to be Steve Kerr. I just have <laughs> to be in the game and productive and, you know, just make sure we're, 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 we're advancing the team. Yeah. Um, and it is a kind of the perfect, like I said, it's that perfect locker room talk before you go out and start your day are these two emails. So I'm glad I found them right at the beginning of the, shit hitting the fan <laughs> i dig it i dig it i gotta yeah. i gotta check out the daily stoic for sure because uh, i've yeah. had it recommended to me by several people now so it, it seems worth checking out so speaking of a place where you might not run into that many stoic people <laughs> a writer's room <laughs> yeah yes yes so yeah how do you how do you find yourself in comedy what what leads you to comedy um wow i well okay i think it comes down to this um my father uh, interest, interested in three things, uh, sports. Um, I'm not athletic. I was not good at sports. Um, medicine. I fainted the sight of blood. So <laughs> that was, that was out and comedy. He would watch Mark's brothers. He would watch Saturday night live. He would watch Carson. He would watch, uh, what, you know, he would, he would talk about Steve Allen. He played me, uh, George Carlin albums. He played me Alan Sherman. He played me buddy Hackett. When I was little, I mean, when I was like nine years old, I, my friends were watching horror movies and I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies. And my parents said, you want to see a rated R movie? The first one you'll see is Animal House. Oh, wow. And so like I was nine years old, I saw Animal House uh, and I was, it, it totally cracked me up. I did not understand why I was laughing and it was probably just imitating my father. But like at some point, comedy became the thing that was like... Uh, he was interested in that I got and it, and, and on some subconscious level, it was our connection point. And then, you know, he would listen to Howard Stern in the car when we picked me up from school. And that was when Howard was on in the afternoon in New York. And uh, we would listen to Imus on the way in just, and like, you know, I just, 
got into comedy and 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 I honestly thought like by the time I got to high school I was watching Letterman and I knew I either wanted to intern I already knew about interns I knew I wanted to intern for either Howard Stern or David Letterman and how was, how old were you when you knew you wanted well, to intern that was that that was when yeah. I was in high school okay oh, high school okay cool by the time I was yeah, like yeah. a junior in high school yeah. but like yeah I mean I when I I knew stand. I watched all the stand-up shows on HBO. I watched them all on MTV. Yeah. There were there was a Fox Saturday Night stand-up show against Saturday Night Live, and I would tape Saturday Night Live and watch that. <laughs> and like it was unbelievable. Like I just loved stand-up. It was something next level. And then I ended up working for. I, I figured if I got an internship for a radio station in New York uh, when I was a freshman in college, that the next year I would have an easier time working for Howard because I'd have internship experience mm-hmm. already. I worked for WPLJ in New York and we were the afternoon radio show. And every Thursday afternoon, the headliner at Caroline's comedy uh, club would come in. So they were headlining the weekend. They would come in to promote the show and we got free tickets. Now I'm 17 or 18. I've got these free tickets to the, to six standup shows um, in the city. I generally went to four of the six, if not uh, all six. And that was like, that summer was before they were hugely famous. Norm Macdonald was just wow. starting on SNL. He was there twice. Dave Chappelle, who had just been in men in tights was there twice. And I got to meet him, which was great. Um, Jeff Ross, like it was just like a young group of comics that would come through and, you know, Richard Jenny, Bobby Slayton, some of the classic guys were around too. And I would go and watch them and I was, you know, 17, eight, I was 18 and I could drink. They would serve me. <laughs> so it was everything. Uh, and that was it. I, I knew I wanted to be in comedy at that point. And it was just a matter of how. And at some point in there, I met um, Jeff Ross and got invited to a writing session at the Friars when he was working on jokes for one of the roasts. Yeah. And uh, I think I got a joke or two on one of the early Comedy Central roasts. Um, and yeah, then he kept me on his email chain when he was looking for jokes. And I kept just, you know, kept sending him stuff, kept getting stuff on. And I ended up interning for Worldwide Pants. And then I, that led to a job at the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn as Craig's assistant. And yeah, then I was like right next to stand-ups, right next to, uh, you know, a bunch of late night writers. And um you know, I just started grinding, trying to get jokes on, working for stand-ups, writing them material. That led to some of those uh, comics giving me stage time. You know, like I would come to the club, I would write them bits. Some of the bits would work, some of them wouldn't. Then they would be like, you should try it, just try it. And then like Elon Gold, guys like that, Orny Adams at the time, would cut me in to their stage time and let me have five minutes if I could, you know, at whatever place. And then... And I was doing stand-up and writing late night. It was great. Um, and that's it. I knew I knew I wanted to just be in comedy. And it was uh, to get to, to, to like flip on SNL. I was faxing jokes in. And Colin Quinn was the host to update at the time. And like, you didn't know if you got a joke on until you saw him say it or not. And I just remember you would be watching SNL and you'd be like, I wrote that. <laughs> you know, like, it was great. Uh, Colin... Yeah. Colin was the update guy. When he read my first joke on SNL, I was like, 
I could still feel that feeling. It must be, it must be what it feels like to hit a home run. <laughs> and you were watching it <laughs> live. I imagine you were watching yeah. it live. Yeah. I was hanging out in my friend Dave's apartment. We were waiting to go out. We were going to go to Molly Malone's. And uh, I remember sitting in his apartment and the joke came on and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I, I yeah. I, and he's like, how did you, he, we didn't, we didn't really know about faxing at the time. Yeah. We were out here in LA, you know, like faxing jokes. It was emailing mm-hmm. jokes, but they still called it faxing. And um, yeah, it just wasn't a practice. A lot of people knew about in my experience. So I had to explain to him that like, no, 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 no. They send you the premises and then you <laughs> write a few jokes and you email them back. And if they use it, you get paid. <laughs> and then, you know, it was, we were shocked, but it was great. So you started off writing and then transitioned into stand-up. What was it? Mm-hmm. What was it like taking the stage? Because um, it's it's mm-hmm. it seems like there. I mean, having tried only a few open mics myself, I I could mm-hmm. tell there's a real difference between being like at your computer and the comfort of just typing something and seeing what happens versus right. actually getting that real-time feedback. What was that right. transition like going from writing jokes to actually delivering them on stage? Uh huh. Well. I had been hanging around at the clubs a lot and I had written stuff for people that they had used and I've seen them take a bit I wrote and then, you know, evolve it and work with them, punching it up, you know, watching the set, driving to another club working on it and seeing again. Um, so I, I kind of understood a few of the rhythms but that said, like I knew, I was not in stand-up at all to be a performer. I had no interest in being in front of the camera. Like to me, it was just an avenue to hang out with really funny comics and get my writing set out loud. In some ways, it like if you're waiting to hear about a script or you're waiting to hear about a job, and you can go on stage somewhere and say a few jokes and get a real-time response, or even get heckled and deal with a heckler, like it's a very, it's a good way to stay sane sometimes while you're waiting for a writing job, but I was not good at it and I was not comfortable with it. And, uh, it was never something, it was never something that was easy for me. So I knew that this wasn't going to be a career that really panned out, <laughs> you know, like for me, it was like, I don't want to say a hobby cause I, I respect the craft and I take it very seriously. Like when I do the occasional set now, I'll still like, I still have a notebook that's just for yeah. stand up. Uh, some stuff I give away and some stuff I keep, but like, I still have, uh, you know, to me, it's like, it, it's like the highest art form. Like to me, it's the hardest thing in the world. It's just, it's a magic show with no tricks. The tricks are the words. And, um, and there's no way to practice. Like the only way to practice is to do it. You know, it's almost like in some way, it's like, imagine if basketball, if basketball, Basketball players could only practice in games. Right. <laughs> like imagine they had to, you know, they, it, it, it's, there's something else about it. And so it was hard, but it was supposed to be hard and it never got easier for me. <laughs> and, but um, the transition, that, that's how it should be. This stand up is, what stand up when done well is amazing. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I knew that. And I, and, and in some ways it was like, I don't, I feel like I knew guys who, men and women who had it in them to be amazing. And I didn't feel I had that, the, the, the cornerstones to do that. So for me, I, I knew I had, I had measured expectations. (laughs) How's that? That's fair. (laughs) And I think what you're saying is really valuable because a lot of people, I think 
when they think about stand-up performers or if somebody's thinking about potentially going up and doing an open mic, they might wonder, you know, they they might go in thinking like, do I want to do this? You know, do I want to be a stand-up or not be a stand-up? But I think what you're saying is actually really valuable. You can also think about it as real-time feedback on your writing. So mm-hmm. there have been, similarly to what you were just saying, there are, there are times where if I'm thinking about a joke that I might want to use in a sample of, a writing sample of mine or a pilot I'm writing, I might, I might go to an open mic and just see like, how does this joke land with people? Is it mm-hmm. working? Is it not working? And I think using like... Stand up for writers is super valuable too. You don't have to just be a performer to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. So I think that's so awesome that um, mm-hmm. that you you brought that up because I found that to be very true for myself as well. Mm-hmm. The place the place I found it most helpful is actually for in uh, being in the room. Yeah. Because for me, the the sense of bombing in front of an audience is the exact same sense of bombing in the room. Yeah. So like any way that you can get your sea legs for that moment when you're a a new writer in a new room and you've just bombed and you have to feel, you have to figure out how to recover from that. Like doing, doing it in a standup room is the most low stakes way to like learn, to learn that ability. Now, you know, it's a lot harder that people can see the mechanics of you using a joke that you've done a million times in a writer's room. So but but it but that feeling that nausea yeah. that knot in your stomach like it's the exact the sweat is exactly the same and if you if an audience sees you have that sweat yeah. you're done right so like just learning to control that when I worked on the Comedy Central roast that was a rough room I mean it was brutal if you pitched a joke and it was a bad joke or a joke they had heard before. They would eat you alive, man. It was just like <laughs> they would rip you apart. And so that was also another like trial by fire. Like the, the, I have never been in a room and, and I'm still friends with all those people. Yeah. Like it's great. It's a great room. And I, I feel bonded to the people I was on those staffs with for like, I mean, I, like I said, we don't, we don't keep in, touch incredibly well but i do feel like we went to camp together yeah. in a lot of ways yeah. but like those early days before your your job is secure you're on a week-to-week contract and like if you don't perform if you don't put numbers up on the board like you're gone and so you have that tension and then you have the tension of just ridicule and embarrassment if you bomb if you write a, a sheet of jokes and not one is usable. Like in those days, they would read them out to the room. <laughs> and yeah. Like, and um, yeah, it was terrible. But at the same time, like, you know, you the first the first time I got in a sitcom room, and it was like people were shepherding you, and people like cared about like you know helping you. It was I felt like it was the greatest. It was like coming. I mean, I guess I hear cult is coming up again, but it's like coming out of a cult into like a real, <laughs> into, into a nurturing society. Like you were, it was great. It was awesome. And so I, I, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that I, I knew how to recover from bombing, um, from standup and from those roast rooms. Yeah. That's interesting. So not just, not just that it informs your writing, but just from a performative aspect, when you're in the room pitching, that's, it's a valuable, mm-hmm. valuable skill to have yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's so cool. You, you've had the experience of not just doing standup, but the l- late night, which is one form of comedy, 
actually being on a narrative serialized comedy series and also the roast which is i guess like a variety it's it's, mm-hmm. its own special basket so i want to i want to kind of go through those one by one can you take me through the rhythm of a late night room and what kind of insofar as there is a typical day what is what does that look like when you're working on a late uh, night show the best part of a late night show is that at the end of the day the show is done and the next day you start over yeah so you get used to a blank page um and you also get used to letting go of the failures and letting go of the victories, right? Um, you'd start fairly early, you know, I think our, our writers meetings on Kilborn in the early days started at like 7.30. We would watch the news feed, maybe it was eight o'clock. Um, I was an assistant in, uh, at the beginning, I would come in and early and help put together the research packets. So um, 7.30, you're getting the research pack with the day's news. You're watching the news feed, which is literally the footage that they're sending to the CBS affiliates all over the country. And we would just watch that and pick what we needed sound bites, but also like a panda born in Japan. Like we would get footage <laughs> of the baby panda. And so it was just like, here's what you got. And then as the, after that writer's meeting, we talked kind of in broad strokes, a few pitches about what Craig wanted for the monologue that night, what Craig wanted for the desk piece, who the guests were, what the segment producers needed comedy comedy wise for from us we would kind of just break down that show and then we 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 would go into our offices for like alone time from roughly nine to like 10 30 yeah and then everyone had to turn in their stuff and then one writer uh who was in charge of the news would start putting the news together another writer who was in charge of the monologue would take the monologue jokes and go through it and then go through it with craig and that kind of let's just say that process starts to form craig's come in He's talked with the producers. They start talking about other bits. So while those writers are putting together those pieces, then we get more assignments. And um, around 12, 1230, you start to have a rough form of the show and we know what our holds are. And we know we need two more monologue jokes. And this news story broke, you know, whatever. Ricky Martin broke up with some, whatever the, <laughs> whatever the, the bit was at the time. And then you're just basically writing you have a, you kind of get a draft of the script um, around, let's say, 2.33. And then we go through it. Everyone kind of makes their notes. We go down the rehearsal. We go through. We know what stuff is going to get cut and what stuff we need new stuff for. People would start filling in those holes around 4 as Craig's getting ready for the show. And then, like, 5, we put the new jokes in. Craig's reviewing them in the chair. 5.30, he goes out and tapes the show, and then we're pretty much done around like 6.30 or 7. That's roughly what the day – and it was great because yeah. you're watching this stuff, and then, you know, the show's to time, and very, very rarely is stuff edited, especially the comedy. Usually it was the interviews. And, like, that stuff goes, and then, you know, yeah, the next morning you're coming in and starting all over, and it's a, it's a great rhythm, and it teaches you – it really taught teaches you this discipline of like at nine o'clock you're sitting down at a computer. Yeah. And you gotta turn in, you know, and there were guy there was a, a guy on staff, and I'll never forget it, like there was a few people on staff who were just volume people, like just pages and pages of jokes. You don't know how they could possibly do it. And then there was a, a dude on staff named Wellesley Wild who um, he's on, uh, he went, he wrote Ted, he's on family guy, like phenomenal writer. Wellesley sometimes would write six jokes. That is it. He would sit in his office, 
you know, you know, you'd hear him, blah, 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 walking around. He'd walk in, he'd walk out, he'd go brush his teeth, whatever. He writes six jokes. They were all six jokes were in the show. They were the best six jokes. No one else could write those six jokes. It was unbelievable. And sometimes he would write, uh, you know, a whole news segment. Sometimes he would write the monologue, whatever it was. But like, he wrote just what should be on TV that night. It was, they were, they were beautiful jokes. And I remember talking to him about it and this other writer, Ross Abrash and Alex Sulkin. And they were like, they would talk to me about like the poetry of a joke. And we would watch at the time SNL was on Comedy Central. So we would watch the news, Dennis Miller or Norm MacDonald doing the news on Comedy Central. And you would, they would just talk about the poetry of like, of an OJ joke and like certain word choices. And it was like this weird thing of like, I never thought about the mechanics of it. Mm. I just never did. And that was the thing that, um, and you know, I was in my early twenties. That was the thing that made me start like picking up books about writing and all this stuff and really like, all right, there's a, it's not just the funniest person at the stand-up club. It's, you know, it's the science of it. And I started to really get into the science of it. And I started to go to any Q and A that was at the writer's guild. Uh, you know, it didn't matter what, right. You know, I can't even tell you the number of times I've seen the everybody love Raymond writers uh, give a speech at the, at the writer's <laughs> guild. I've been to every single one of them. Um, but that was like that. The, the science of it was like, it was mind blowing to me, and it and it and uh, and it was like something that really hit me, like in my soul. I was like, "Yes, I've thought that. I've never articulated it, but I used to think that there was beauty, that there was art in a stand-up set. There was, um, yeah. I used to think that there was something that people were taking it for granted." And I was like, no, there's something amazing here. And at the same time, when I was there, I was starting to get closer with Jeff Ross and he was introducing me to a lot of older comics. And I got to be really close with Buddy Hackett in the last couple of years while he was um, alive. And uh, yeah, he would speak about it the same way. And then I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival and I got, I got to write with John Cleese for a special show. And then Cleese started talking about the science of writing, not just the science of writing comedy, but like structure of your day. Like he literally was down to the, to the, and he has a book about creativity coming out and I'm hoping it's all in there because he would give us these little lectures about like pencil sharpening time. <laughs> he would literally, I'm, I'm not joking. He would, he'd like you go into your office, you do this for 10 minutes, then you have pencil sharpening time. And he's like, that's, you're stacking your papers, you're getting everything, like give yourself time for that. So you don't get mad that you wasted 10 minutes doing that. Mm. And now your, your day is set. That's a lot of, you check that off your list. You've accomplished that. And then now it's, now it's writing time. Don't edit, no deleting, no deleting yeah. during writing time. And it was like, yeah, it was just, it's, it's an obsessive thing. I, and I, you know, I listen to all the interviews on podcasts now. I'm still kind of like just obsessed with people's processes. So that's why I love this this podcast because you you bring uh you bring that that sort of 
magnifying glass to all these other careers and i love it <laughs> oh thank you man yeah it's been super fun and man there was there were so so many good things in there that i want to i want to touch on one is that you mentioned you know somebody could come in with six jokes and they all land and somebody could come in with a hundred and to me the difference between snipers and volume shooters and i think a good writer's room has a combo of both yeah um, probably which You're is totally which right. is fascinating and and just getting like you said the there's a science behind jokes, which is fascinating because I thought before I, I got super familiar with comedy and comedy rooms, I was like, oh, these people must have been the funniest people in school, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But I've heard a lot of interviews like you where comedy, many comedy writers, many even stand-up performers, they confess that, no, I wasn't even the funniest person in my friend group. And right. it, it speaks to what you're saying about that science of, oh, they learned about these rhythms and whether it's like little secrets like pencil sharpening time whatever they 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 put it all together and that helps them bring the end result yeah i don't know yeah i don't know what it is um like my group of friends i had a group of friends when I, when i was a freshman and a sophomore in high school we all watched comedy we all watched the stand up shows um but our lunchtime conversation we would have we would have rank out sessions so we would sit down at we would sit down at lunch and we would insult each other until we were either done or until someone went too far or didn't have a comeback and then it was over yeah. and there was one time like i'll never forget uh a kid i can i don't even remember exactly we were all going making fun of each other and i was a heavier kid and he he said something about how fat my fingers were. And my friend Greg Benson said, he's like, you got shark eyes. Like your eyes went black and you just started cutting this guy in half. And I just kept making fun of him until he started crying. And I still feel terrible about it. I, I still feel bad about it. I dread like bumping into him. I still feel, I remember that feeling, but it was this thing of like, I don't even know that I had those thoughts about him in me, but like Greg was like, do you just have this thought about everybody else at the table where you know, and you're saving jokes in case someone goes too far. And I was like, no, these are just things that I noticed. And I guess I just never articulated. And I think that's what it is. I think a lot of comedy writers just notice these little things. I don't know that funnier stuff happens to us or, you know, I just think we notice things. I just think you notice, you know. Um, so you were basically, you were ready for roasts as a child. You you were. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess. I, I mean, I, if I thought I was, I when I actually got to the roast room, I really, I was writing for Jeff. And, you know, Jeff is a very uh, kind person. Like, he's not going to tell you which jokes are bad. He's going to tell you which jokes he's going to use. Yeah. He's not going to. And so he had recommended me to the roast. So I kind of like graduated from his stable of writers to like the roast writers and the roasts were run are still run by Joel Gallen and Joel like ran the, a bunch of MTV shows back in the day, MTV movie awards, like he, and he had a little bit of a temper and he would be also a very nice guy. I did not know how to talk to him at first, but he wanted you to defend your work because mm. he felt like if you handed something in and he shit on it which he did um and you didn't say what are you crazy this is the best joke ever written then he was like then it's not good if you don't believe it enough 
to fight back. Cause at the end of my first week, and I remember it's week to week. Yeah. The end of my first week, I'm waiting to find out if I'm going to get back. Right. right. And now, now I'm starting to wonder what next week's going to be like. So it's, it's like a Friday afternoon at like four. And I'm like, Hey, Joel, am I, am I, Am I coming back next week? And, uh, you know, all the other roast writers, they probably knew I was doing better than I was because I was a little quiet, but in the room you can talk and then Joel's office is over here. So you got to go to Joel's office, right? He's not a writer. He's just a showrunner director. Anyway, and Joel's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's worked out so good. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, do you even know what I have in the show? And he's like, no, I, I just, I've seen all your stuff. And it's like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm that impressed. I was like, okay, well, honestly, like, I think you have a pretty, I, I don't think you have an accurate depiction of like how much I've actually contributed. And he was like, bring your stuff. So I went, I printed out all my stuff from the week and I went in there with this pile of jokes. And that's just representative of the stuff I wrote at home or on breaks or whatever, not the stuff that we're just pitching out. In the sure. room. But anyway, so I bring in the jokes and he's like, he starts reading the jokes out loud to me. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. But like, there were a few gems in there that were in the show. He's like, oh, that's yours. Yeah. He's like, well, why don't you tell me? I was like, what am I supposed to do? Just yell at you? He's like, yeah, yell at me. If you think your stuff's good, yell at me. And I was like, oh, okay. That's what he wants. He wanted that fight. And so once I was like, yeah, that's a great joke. That should be in the show. And we, we got that kind of honesty, you know, and those, we were butting heads. Like, I think he started to respect me more. And that's when I kind of, I was brought back for the rest of that roast. And, um, you know, it was, it was just, and then I wrote on a bunch of roasts after that and his whatever movie awards, whatever he did, but it was just like, he wanted you to defend your work. He wanted you to do that. So that's, you know, that was kind of like, that was kind of a, a me coming out of my shell moment where I was like, all right, I, I you know, I, I belong here and I'm, and I feel okay saying that. Um, cause this was at the time. Like it was one of the hardest rooms and it was just a joke room, you know, like it was yeah. the best joke writers in the city from, uh, you know, from all different shows. They would just come. It was like this all-star team. There were SNL people there. There were uh, daily show people there. There were stand-up people. It was like a real kind of the different worlds of comedy coming together to write these scripts and, um, and write these jokes. And it was like, you know, I felt really good that I was holding my own in that room. Cause at that point I really was like, you know, stand up and stuff, but like, um, I had really only been exposed to the Kilbourne room. Yeah. So, you know. so it's a straight joke room. So are you guys like how much of that room is sitting at the table and, and just having a writer's assistant or whoever, just kind of transcribing all the brilliance that's coming out of your mouth <laughs> wow. and, and how much of it is, uh, you know, you, okay, we, we got our marching orders, go off to your office and come back in uh, an hour. We would have uh, a lot of, I mean, you would know the night before, like what you were going to be working on tomorrow. Like tomorrow we're writing a set for this person. Mm -hmm. And you go, all right, great. And we, some people's like, we need an angle. Mm -hmm. Like we need to craft them a story that can hold all these roast jokes. And, you know, and it's total vitriol. You're just like sitting there as a group just you have put a picture up on the board of someone and talk about their credits we we're holding their imdb credits you know printed out or like clips from interviews and the news people are finding you stuff and you're like this is a pretty big story you're arguing who knows what about them and what are the kind of 
what are other ways to get into it or like what other projects did they do? What projects did they miss out on? You're trying to dig for these stories and then we'll all talk about it and then we'll break up for an hour and write jokes and we'll mail them in and one person in the room will be in charge of that person's set, you know? And so, and then you're the head writer is basically making sure that you don't have any jokes that overlap with other people's jokes. Now there's always like two or three comics that you don't know. They're writing their own stuff. They got their mm -hmm. own people. We don't know what jokes they're going to do. Mm. So you have extra, you've all these extra jokes in case stuff gets overlapped on show night. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask like, how do you, how do you go about writing to that person's voice? Mm -hmm. So for example, like you worked on the Joan Rivers uh, yeah. roast, right? Yeah. And so I imagine I was actually going to bring up Gilbert Gottfried, but he might've had his oh. own people or did you guys write for him? No, Gilbert used, Gilbert used the room. Okay. Uh, Mike Ferrucci. And when I worked on the roast, Mike Ferrucci and Ray wrote Ray James, uh, both brilliant guys um, do a ton of stuff with triumph. They wrote a lot of stuff with um, Gilbert he most people call in you talk to them yeah. what they're comfortable with what they're not comfortable with and then you send them a first pass and you mm. get their notes or their manager will read the first pass and go you know what his wheelhouse is this her wheelhouse is that she's not going to want to talk about that she's not going to want to make fun of this person for that he's not going to want to touch the subject but then I always find like the two or three days before the roast, everyone gets so nervous that they're going to bomb that they just like, what I'll say whatever you think will work. <laughs> and then it just becomes, uh, you know, you're building them the set that's going to crush. Yeah. That's what you're, you know, you're just trying to make them Cloris Leachman. Um, I forget what roast that was. Was it the Shatner roast? No. Cloris Le Leachman at one of the roasts just was filthy an old lady being filthy and she destroyed and uh she was like talking about her first her first theater job was a donkey show i forget what it was but like she crushed and people saw that and she stole the show and people saw that and were like oh my god i want to i want the chloris leachman set like i want to steal wow. the show and so it was like okay you gotta try to give them that and you, you know you can it was just she knew she knew what she could pull off and she was happy to say anything and it was great and that was also joel was like i don't know this might be too dirty <laughs> you know yeah so we it's just you're towing a line you're just trying to feel is it right i don't know so but um for the roast yeah. is there a rehearsal like i know snl has a rehearsal but are the do the roasts have a rehearsal or you just go straight no, to the event there's a run through, run -through where they yeah. read it off the prompter okay to an, em to an empty room got it you know, uh, just so they can feel the stage. And you usually can feel what jokes are too much at that point. Yeah. Or, or, or where jokes are just not going to be strong enough. Yeah. And you start subbing stuff out. Stuff comes in on the fly. You know, some one of the comics will come in and be like, hey, I had this joke, but I can't do it. Um, you know, because I think I'm going to do this joke about that person. I don't want to do too many. And so people start throwing each other jokes. It's, it becomes a little bit like a horse trade. Like, you know, if you can give me two Blake Griffin jokes, I can give you, <laughs> you know, I'll give you one joke about so-and-so. And so, and so uh, it becomes this, you know, horse trade, which is interesting. But um, there's always extra jokes, yeah. jokes that get left on the floor. <laughs> that you're like, they used to do a show at Largo the night after the roast. So if the roast tape on a Sunday night, mm -hmm. usually the Monday night after the writers from the roast, I never did one of these, but a handful of the writers would go to Largo and read the jokes. Oh, wow. 
that didn't make air <laughs> that 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 didn't make the show oh that sounds uh, like fun that was great oh it was, they were great shows <laughs> so i'm sure there's a lot from being in a late night room and a roast room that carries over to just a narrative comedy series mm-hmm. but what what did you find is in your experience what was different about transition about working in like a narrative like an actual show like uh that airs week to week or now with the binge model, mm-hmm. you know, all at once. Right. What, what was that transition? Like what's, what's the rhythm of that room? Like by comparison? Uh, well, so my first, I was on a single camera show for MTV called the hard times of RJ Berger. It was run by David Katzenberg and Seth Graham Smith. And they were awesome. Uh, but they kind of knew the rough story arc for the season. And we wrote them all before we shot them. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was all the episodes were, broken out into one long arc and it wasn't like a ton of story discussion but from that a couple of the writers uh helped me get into some feature punch-up rooms and it was the first time where i i had started to hear people speak about story structure and like i felt very behind (laughs) on like what some of these terms were and i i I, you know it was all kind of it was all new new words to me you know and so my first time on a show was uh, on a multicam sitcom network show was better with you which was run by greg malins and uh shauna goldberg meehan from friends and it was just a a crazy writers room just huge great writers and everyone spoke in the shorthand and i had no idea what any of it meant now i was a staff writer on the show so the bar was pretty low. They weren't expecting a ton from me. Um, and I had just come from like show running a couple of late night pilots for Comedy Central. So like, I felt like comedically I was going to be okay. And that freed me up to like start to figure out stuff about story structure. And I would just, you know, pull people aside and try to learn story, you know, but I never wanted to seem like I didn't know. (laughs) So I had to ask you know, I had to pretend that I knew and try to figure out maybe, maybe I maybe I fooled nobody, but, um, I was able to learn about story in that way. And like, you know, like hands-on training, but that was hard because like, I didn't, uh, I guess I just never did my homework about it. My, I, I had my eyes so focused on late night and sketch from college, late high school. Like that was what I was going to do. When I wanted to get into sitcoms, which was like a progression that came to me like in my later 20s, I was like, I want to do sitcoms. I, I should have been more serious about it, you know? And I, I, there were a few people early on that I had met uh, and I gave specs to. And I always think about now calling them and apologizing for wasting their time <laughs> because I'm sure they were terrible, you know? Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I remember one guy, Michael Borkow, uh, and, and I'm, I don't mind saying this cause I, it truly helped me, but I gave him a spec very early on, uh, that I had written and it was garbage. And he told me yeah. <laughs> like, he was like, this is so unprofessional. Don't let anyone read this. Like, <laughs> and sometimes that's good I'm to hear so, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy he did that. I am so happy he did that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it took a long time for me to kind of learn, you know, learn about story and stuff in, in, a, in a way. And, and I still like, 
it's one of those things that I'm very conscious of. Like, I, I want to make sure that I'm on board with the same story structure uh, preference as the showrunner. Like, yeah. when I was on I Feel Bad, <clears throat> Asim Batra, who created the show, who's hilarious. She's, oh my God, she's so great. Um, she, the first day, she said, here's what I think this, our stories, uh, the loose structure of our story should be. And she like gave this formula, which was a formula that we tweaked and, you know, subverted from time to time. But I'd never had a, a showrunner sit down and go, here's what my story structure preference is. And it was so helpful. And it, it, it really gave our room a vocabulary to go back to. And I really think it saved like probably three weeks total of us all getting uh, our sea legs and all getting, you know, used to kind of what, what's going to work for us. She was like, here's the model I think works day one. Here's the model. Yeah. We can tweak, we can tweak this model, but at least we're working with something. Right. And I've heard other people, I don't know if this, um, I've heard like Greg Daniels hands out like a, a story. Yeah. Sheet it's called the Goldilocks sheet. I think something like that. I, okay. I forgot what, what was in it to be honest, but yeah, there's, yeah. he has a, yeah, he has a formula as well. That's great. Yeah. Like, I love that. I love that. I don't know why. Like I, my mind goes, I love structure. Yeah. <laughs> like Pixar, I like Pixar good, famously yeah. has a formula yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I always read, I read all those save the cats yeah. and you know, uh, what's the, um, Hero's Journey? How to write? How to oh. write? Oh, the Hero's yeah, Journey. Yeah, yeah Joseph yeah, Campbell. Yeah. And then all the takes on that. Yeah. Like, a, a, there, there was a long time ago. There was a Dan Harmon blog. That oh went yeah, Story up. Circle, right? Is that what yeah, it's called? His, yeah. Yeah, his Story Circle take. Yeah. And then there's like there's the Craig Mazin version now. That was a podcast on Script Notes a couple months ago. Uh, that was uh very similar to, um, I think it's How to Write a Dramatic Play. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like famously the book that Woody Allen picked up to oh, learn wow. how to write, uh, you know, how to write um, story. So like, it's just really interesting. It's something that's like, man, when that shorthand is handed out, it's very, it, it's a great way to kind of feel like, like we on late night, we had these things called joke baskets, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically, a refillable, a refillable comedy bit, yeah. you know, Jimmy Fallon's thank you notes. Yeah, sure. You know, it's like, right. What are our thank you notes? Like those joke baskets of like, what's the work, what's the funny work problem and how is that going to conflict with the funny family problem she has, you know, for, I feel bad. It was like a pretty kind of clean way to find these like puzzle pieces and put it together. And uh, man, I, I loved it. It was great. I, I, I wish show runners, um, I mean, and you know, it's, it, for some people, I'm sure it, it would work great. And for some people, I'm sure it's like antithetical to what they think writing might be, yeah. but personally it was a, a huge help. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, even if it's not having a formula, definitely having a showrunner who comes in with a vision mm-hmm. is, is super helpful. And I mean, mm-hmm. you definitely want to have room for the writers to contribute. So it, mm-hmm. it, there's, there's harm with coming in with too much vision sometimes, I think, right, right, so, right, but, right. but having, having some guidelines, I think is super helpful, um, mm-hmm. just to get everybody on the same page. So mm-hmm. before we, before we wind down with some fun rapid fire questions, I'm curious, you've had these variety of different comedy experiences. Is there a difference in your process at all when you're in a more joke oriented situation, like a roast versus a story situation, mm-hmm. or is it both pretty much? A similar process for you does that make sense no yeah 
No, I think, look, uh, um, um, I, I feel like there is some, I don't know that, I don't know the right way to articulate it, but I do feel like there is some essence of both that is similar. And to me, it's like usually the most honest uh, thing, usually the thing I'm most embarrassed to say or think or express is going to be where the funny, the, the funny, most interesting stuff is for me. And that could be about a news story or that could be about, uh, you know, um, you know, a story for a sitcom or whatever it is. And so to me, it's, it's trying to find that because to me that like, when I see something that has that, uh, someone exposing their themselves through comedy, um, I, that's the stuff that has me hooked and had me hooked when, you know, from early on, uh, stand up, uh, news jokes, even, uh, you know, like I think the best, <laughs> the best comedy coming out right now about, you know, some of our top, more topical stuff is the fear based stuff. Like John Oliver going, what the fuck is going yeah. on <laughs> is like cathartic and captivating yeah. to me. And like, so I feel like it's that it's trying to like figure out how I feel about something and try to express that in the most honest way, raw, raw, honest way, you know, warts and all. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, to, I think that to me is, is, uh, is what I'm trying to do when I'm in the room is just try to, you know, just get to the honesty of it, uh, as best I can. Yeah. That's what I most love in, in comedies too. Like when I think about even my favorite comedies like the office or curb your enthusiasm, I mean, I imagine, I imagine those writers are, are thinking like you, this is the most embarrassing thing that could happen to this yeah. character at this moment. Yeah. And there's a yeah. lot of specificity in that too, which makes it super funny. And mm. yet it's also super relatable too. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, that uh, totally, totally resonates with me. So now that we've mm. gotten this master class in comedy from late night <laughs> to stand up to roast to <laughs> right, sitcoms. Right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll land the plane. We'll wind down a bit with some fun rapid fire questions. Uh, all right. Uh, so what's an app that you can't live without? Um, I don't know if it's an app mm-hmm. and, and I certainly could live without it, yeah. but, uh, have you been on gold belly? Yes. Gold oh belly? my goodness. I just ordered up this pastrami from God knows where that was delicious. Exactly. Off gold belly. It was incredible. Yeah. And tying it back to writer's rooms and look, you know, right now I just feel like this is what I've been using. I am sending my friends treats and just yeah. trying to like, you know, um, find these little treats right now. Cause God knows I, you like don't get the, it. The, um, from, everybody loves from Raymond the writer's room. I used yeah. to hear on Fridays, they would order lunch from all over the country. Oh, wow. so on Mon- like Monday they would pick like lobsters from Maine and then they would get the lobsters from Maine on Friday. Like just crazy. I mean, it was a hit show and that was what they used. And I, and Phil Rosenthal right. now has his own food show. So it yeah. makes sense. <laughs> the big food thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And I feel like in some ways, like this is, this is how we get to feel like we're on everybody loves Raymond. Like I get donuts from Brooklyn or pizza. I just like the best pizza place in the country. Uh, Chris Bianco's place, uh, uh, in Phoenix just went up on like Tuesday or Wednesday. And I've been telling my friends about this for years. And so like my mom's birthday's next week. I sent her pizza. I got pizza for my friend who just had surgery. Like, you know, our friend down the street who's having some trouble. I got them. Like I just, 
I was like, oh, I'm giving this Chris Bianco pizza to everybody, <laughs> you know. Oh man, any of so, your any of your friends listening to this who have not received a pizza might be upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, email me, I, whatever. As long as Chris Bianco knows why, knows that it's coming from me, I'm on his radar. That would be the best. Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gold Belly. I'm a fan as well. And uh, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Um. Uh, I don't know if I'd like him to, but Chunk from Goonies. Okay. I feel like <laughs> I feel like a lot of people called me Chunk growing up uh, and into college. So Chunk from Goonies. Fair How's enough. That? Fair <laughs> enough. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Oh, no question, Dunk. If I could slam Dunk, uh, I would. I mean, yeah. Every Jewish I mean, guy's like, dream. Every short Jewish right, guy's dream. Right. I love the ball handle as well, but like just for one alley-oop. I just want one alley-oop. I yeah. love that. Where's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? I have never been to Hawaii. Oh, wow. I want to I go to Hawaii so bad that I don't like – at this point, I can't decide <clears> – <throat> we can't decide if we should go my, just my wife and I, or if we should take the kids. Yeah. Like every time I sit down, it's like, what, what's the right Island? I don't know, <laughs> but I, it's uh yeah. Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii is super fun. Yeah. I've been, yeah. I've been twice yeah. and enjoyed it a lot. Which islands? Uh, I think I went to Maui once and <laughs> I've, I'm not good with Hawaii geography at all. Is Honolulu, right. is Honolulu on a separate, Honolulu is a separate Island, right? From Maui. Yes, I think yeah, so. so I think yeah. the most recent trip I did, we were in Maui for a bit and then we were in Honolulu for a bit. Mm -hmm. um honolulu mm -hmm. is super touristy from what i remember it was like basically being in santa monica <laughs> um yeah, 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 yeah. yeah um but maui maui was great i really enjoyed mm -hmm. maui awesome yeah and then what's your jam as in song uh, like you like to jam to oh my god uh well i'm always trying to decide uh, when the, i listened to your other podcasts and heard you ask this <laughs> question i was like am i gonna say Am I going to pick a Biggie song or am I going to pick a Springsteen song? Um, but if I'm, but if I'm being most honest, this whole quarantine has been about the Beastie Boys for me because um, of the documentary yep. and Apple TV. And I finally picked up the Beastie Boys book, yeah. which is a huge book. Um, although thankfully mostly pictures. Uh, so I think Sure Shot has been our, my jam Fair uh, the last few uh, the last few months. <laughs> nice. So, and I've heard the book yeah. is really cool. Even if you weren't a huge beastie boys fan, it's just an awesome book. Yeah. There's like a little Roy Choi cookbook in there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> there's a great, it's awesome. But I would say this, it's incredibly similar to the documentary. Mm -hmm. So like I would watch the documentary and then if you love the documentary, which you probably, I think most people would then pick up the book because it, it'll be, that kind of fills in the blanks. Whereas if you read the book and then see the documentary, you'll be like, Oh, I, I already got that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's all, that's how I feel. That's how I feel yeah. when I read a book and then I watch the Ted talk that the author gives. And <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yes. Oh yeah. man, I could have saved a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And where can people find you online or on social media? Oh, on Twitter, on at Holkowitz. Uh, Hulk Witz, uh, W-I-T-Z. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, cool, man. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, of course. And if anybody wants to look up the pod, you can find us on Instagram at HDYDpod.